Hello and welcome to Property Money Trees, Maximising Property Values, the once a month show where I break down the steps of how to recognise, enhance and then extract the values in property in order to create wealth. Would you like to find out how you can benefit from the steps of maximising property values? This is even if you don't own a property yet or have a deposit. If that's a yes, then you're in the right place to find out. My name is Patricia Ogunfaber, and although many know me for my work as a solicitor, on this show, you will be getting the benefit of my 30 plus years worth of experience of maximising property values, experience which has given me a net worth in millions. So who might benefit from listening to this show? Literally anyone with an interest in creating property wealth. Welcome back. Today I'm going to be talking about a few of the ways in which you can actually fund a property that you might have decided to secure. So this is really only going to be relevant if you are looking to buy the property in question. So simply put, there are four main ways in which you can raise the finance to buy a property. The first is cash. That is so straightforward. It's so simple. It's a no brainer. And I'm not going to talk about that any further. The next one is equity, where you might band together with a few like minded people and you buy shares in a company but there can't be more than 20 of you or you would have to make sure that the company is a public liability company and those are more expensive to set up and run than ordinary limited liability companies. You don't have to have as many as 20 people. You could, if you're doing a joint venture, just have one or two other people and you all chip in according to how you might have agreed you're going to fund this particular property. So that would be an equity funding. Then you have debt funding, which is where you go and you borrow the money that you might need to buy the property with. Lastly, just so that I mention it, but I'm not going to go into it because I have no experience or knowledge about it is mezzanine funding. Now mezzanine funding is a sort of like hybrid type of funding. It's not quite a loan and it's not quite equity. It kind of like sits in the middle and apparently that's why they call it mezzanine funding. But what it does is it lends money to the borrower and that money is agreed in a way that if the borrower doesn't pay the money back as agreed then the lender can convert the loan into equity so clearly this is only going to apply to the very big companies that have lots of assets that a lender will want to be able to buy into the equity of that company so that's the last that I'm going to say about mezzanine funding. Essentially, this particular podcast is about debt financing. 
with debt financing, you have two types. One is regulated and the other is unregulated. Regulated finance is where the transaction comes under the remit of the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. That's the FCA. If a transaction is regulated, then the borrower will be able to access the benefits of the financial services compensation scheme. So if the product or if a product is missold to the borrower or the consumer, that person could be entitled to financial compensation, especially if the financial ombudsman finds that mis-selling has indeed taken place. The difference between regulated and unregulated debt financing, which to most of us is like a mortgage, um, is that with regulated uh, um, mortgages, the borrower or a family member will be residing in the property that is going to be bought. With unregulated mortgages, the borrower will normally have to sign a document to say that they're not going to live there and no family member is going to live there. People have asked me in the past what would happen if they got an unregulated buy-to-let mortgage but actually moved in. And the answer is probably not very much. But because by moving in, the borrower would be in breach of the mortgage terms and conditions, if the mortgage company were to find out, they would be well within their rights to ask the borrower to pay back the mortgage loan and it could just be within 30 days. If that happens, the borrower may well find that the house is being repossessed and or the borrower made bankrupt. Is it really worth it? I wouldn't have thought so. But the reasons why some people might want to go down that route is because they don't earn enough to be able to get a regulated mortgage because the tests and all the questions that are asked are, are quite stringent because the lenders now need to make sure that the borrower can afford the mortgage that they are giving. So if somebody doesn't earn enough money to buy the house that they want to live in, they might be able to afford it if the mortgage is unregulated as a buy-to-let mortgage because buy-to-let mortgages are assessed based on the income that the house or the property is going to generate. So that would be the rental income. So when you apply for a buy-to-let mortgage, you will fill out a form you will be asked how much the property is worth. So that would normally be what you've agreed to pay for it in order to buy it. You will also be asked how much rent you think the property will generate. Very experienced, you will have a very good idea as to how much rent that property can bring in. But if you are not property data, a link to which you can find in episode one of these podcasts will actually help you with that. 
it will tell you what sort of rent you can expect to achieve for the property that you are looking at. So anyway, when you are applying for the mortgage, you also give this rental figure to the mortgage lender or to the broker if you are going through a broker. The mortgage lender will then ask a valuer to go out and value that property. The valuer will be carrying out two valuations. One will be a capital valuation to make sure that the property is worth how much it is that you say it's worth or how much it is that you are buying it for. And the second valuation will be a rental valuation. Now, the capital valuation is important because, again, lenders have certain criteria and the interest that they want to charge you will depend on what loan to value you are looking to borrow. So if we use a purchase of £100,000, for example, if you are going to put down a 25% deposit, that will mean that you are borrowing £75,000 and your loan to value is therefore 75%. So that is 75,000 divided by 100,000 times 100. If you are putting down £50,000, then your loan to value would be 50%. If you only have £10,000, that would give you a loan to value of 90% and you are most unlikely going to find anyone who is going to lend to you on that basis. The smallest loan to value ratio that I have come across and accessed in the past has been 85%, meaning that I've put down a 15% deposit and I've borrowed the remaining 85%. These days though, most lenders will be looking for a minimum of 25% deposit. So mortgages are really only um, appropriate if you are going to buy and you want to let immediately although some people will abuse them and buy a property that they are looking to flip but I shall go on to that in a little bit more uh, detail um, in a little while. If you have a regulated mortgage and you are missold a product you will be entitled to compensation. If you have an unregulated mortgage you are not afforded the same protections and you will not automatically be entitled to any financial compensation but in late 2016 the government asked lenders to start stress testing buy to let lending so the way that that works is first you need to know if you are going to be taking out this buy-to-let mortgage in your own name or if you are going to be taking out the buy-to-let mortgage through a limited liability company. If you are taking out the mortgage in your own name, it then matters if you are a basic rate taxpayer, meaning that your annual income is less than £50,000 or if you are a higher rate taxpayer, meaning that you earn 
more than £50,000 a year. What the lenders have to do is they look at how much you are borrowing from them. So in our example of buying for £100,000 and let's say you put down a £25,000 deposit, you will therefore be looking to borrow £75,000. What they then do is they apply a notional interest to this £75,000 and that is usually 5.5%. That will give them the amount of interest that you have to pay to them over a period of 12 months. This annual interest is then divided by 12 to get to a monthly interest. So every month you would have to pay that lender this one twelfth of the annual interest that they have calculated using a 5.5% notional interest rate. So the monthly interest is then multiplied by a factor depending on whether you are buying in your own name and whether you are a basic rate taxpayer or a higher rate taxpayer or whether you're buying through a limited liability company. If you are buying in your own name and you are a basic rate taxpayer or you earn less than £12,500, which means that you are a nil rate taxpayer, this monthly interest is multiplied by 125%. The resulting figure is a figure that the valuer must say you will earn from that property on a monthly basis for you to be able to borrow the £75,000. If, on the other hand, you are buying in your own name and you are a higher rate taxpayer, the monthly interest figure is multiplied by 145%. If, on the other hand, you are buying through a limited liability company, then the stress testing is at 125%. So, if you are buying in your own name and you are a nil rate taxpayer, meaning that your normal income is less than £12,500, or you are a basic rate taxpayer, meaning that you earn less than £50,000 per annum, or you are buying through a limited liability company, then the stress testing is at 125% of the monthly interest that you have to pay to the lender. If you are, however, buying in your own name and you are a higher rate taxpayer, meaning that you earn £50,000 or more, then the stress testing is at 145% of the monthly interest that the lender has arrived at by using this notional interest rate of 5.5%. So that is the basic premise 
of unregulated mortgages for buy-to-lets, but it doesn't quite end there. Now, what I've said applies to any mortgage product for a period of less than five years. If you then choose a product which is for five years or more, so for example, a five-year fixed rate mortgage, then the stress testing goes down to 125%, meaning that even higher rate taxpayers can borrow more if they take out a five-year product, so a five-year fix or a five-year tracker or one of those things. It's a good idea to know about these things so that if you do use a broker, and I always use a broker, then you sort of like understand what your options are. Sometimes what I have done is if I'm buying a relatively rundown property and I need to raise additional finance from the property once I've done up the works, I will try and take out a standard variable rate mortgage. Now, these are usually more expensive than the fixed rate mortgages and the tracker rate mortgages. But the whole idea behind me doing that is that once the property can be valued for a higher rental, I will then remortgage either with the same lender or with someone else because the valuer will be able to come in, they will be able to see that the property is a lot more attractive and they will therefore be able to say it will generate a bit more rent and by generating a bit more rent that means that I can borrow more, that means that I can therefore take some of the money that I might have put into the property on the purchase and the refurbishment out of that property so that I can then replicate the whole process with another property. When you go for a standard variable rate mortgage, there are no restrictions as to when you redeem that mortgage. I know it's, it is quite naughty, but I have done that in the past. The other option for doing what I've just described is by using bridging finance. Now, what I've done won't be available to use with every property because if the property is extremely run down and it can't be moved into immediately, most lenders will say it's not habitable. And if it's not habitable, they will not lend on it. So examples are properties that don't have a kitchen. You will find with a lot of auction properties that the kitchens might have been removed to discourage people from breaking in and squatting in those properties. Again, if there is no bathroom in a property, it will be uninhabitable. There are also other reasons why lenders might not want to lend on particular properties. And I'll just mention a few that come to mind as I'm talking. So properties with evidence of subsidence. So when whenever I'm looking at a property to buy, I will walk around the external 
parts of the property, if I have access to those um, parts and see if there are any cracks going up from the ground to the top. So that's one way of spotting subsidence. Another way is if you look at the windows, see if there are any cracks kind of like going out from the corners of the windows um, and also of the doors. Now, some sellers are quite canny. They will know that the property is suffering from subsidence and they will go in there and try and patch it up so that a buyer stroke surveyor won't notice that the property has um, a subsidence problem. But again, you can actually really spot that because they tend to do it quite cheaply. But if you are unfortunate to have a seller that also has a deep pocket, you might not be able to spot it because what they would do is they would not only repair it and patch it up, they'd actually repoint the whole of that wall. They'd take out the broken bricks, they'd put in replacement bricks, usually old as well, so you can't spot the bricks have been replaced. And with a repointing job, no one can really spot, you know, previous cracks. This is a type of debt financing. Another type is bridging, which I shall talk about in the next podcast because I don't want to use too many figures in this particular one because it is so easy to get lost with figures. But just to round up, in the example that I have used, if you are going to get a buy-to-let mortgage for £75,000, if you, for instance, go for a two-year fixed rate mortgage and you are buying in your own name and you are a basic rate taxpayer, you will have to be able to show rentals of £430 per month. If you are a higher rate taxpayer, the figure jumps up to £499 a month. If you, on the other hand, go for a five-year fixed and you are a basic rate taxpayer or you are buying through a limited liability company or you are a nil rate taxpayer, the figures are £352 and £408 respectively if you are a higher rate taxpayer. So you can see the very big difference between these figures. And in the past, I have gone for a two-year fixed where I haven't been able to afford to go for a standard variable rate mortgage on the premise that once I've done the works, I will remortgage and pay the early repayment penalty, which is something that you do have to pay if you come out of a fixed time product before the contractual end of that product. And I have then switched into a five-year fix, which would be a lot cheaper, maybe not a lot cheaper, but sometimes it um, enables me, like I said, to take equity out of the property 
and with a five-year fix I can borrow a bit more money so it allows me to take even more out of that property and just before I round up on buy to let mortgages so in the next session where I'm going to be talking about bridging finance I will also talk about development finance because they are much of a muchness so I'm not talking about development finance today and I shall also touch upon crowdfunding very briefly in the next episode. One thing to bear in mind is when you do apply for a mortgage you will be charged an arrangement fee. The good thing with buy-to-let mortgages though is that most lenders will allow you to add the arrangement fee to the amount that they are lending to you. However, if as in our example you've got a 75% loan to value and the product that you are looking at says the lender won't lend you more than a 75% loan to value um, amount, then you won't be able to add the arrangement fee to your mortgage. But if you have some leeway, you can add it to the mortgage and it really does help with cash flow. You also will need to pay an admin fee usually, but that's quite nominal. Um, the ones that I pay are £180 per application. Then you'd need to pay a valuation fee and that can range from £500 to like £1,100, depending on the lender, depending on who they instruct. You might also need to commission various expert reports, for example, a structural survey, and that could cost anything up to about £1,200. But if you walk around initially and you kind of like try and see whether or not there is any evidence of, of subsidence not only on the outside but on the inside as well so you're looking at corners of doors of windows if there are any cracks in the walls on the inside even if you haven't seen any on the outside then the lender shouldn't really require you to carry out a structural survey. However, if you aren't experienced enough and you don't think you can spot problem properties on your own, it's well worth paying, you know, a thousand or two thousand pounds to have an expert come round and have a look for you because it could save you a lot of money going forward. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope that at the very least, you have found the talk thought-provoking. There will be some bonus scenes being released over the next few weeks, so please do come back. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe. In any event, please do rate and review the episode because it would be great to read your feedback. Thank you very much and hopefully see you next month.